Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Asher. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC. What's up? Hey, Tobias. What I did lately, I did a bit of travel to Copenhagen. So it's a short flight. It's about one hour and 20 minutes from Helsinki direct to Copenhagen. It's a great city. I, I haven't been there for a couple of years, really. Very accessible next to the sea. People are friendly. Food is great. A lot of wine bars in the city. <laughs> and and what's best, the weather was great, as at, at, at least compared to Finland. So I stayed in a hotel outside the city center. And as always, I, I do pack my gym gear if I know that I will be going for a couple of days. So on, on the first evening, I go down to what they call the fitness area at the hotel. And what I usually expect is maybe one treadmill one rowing machine and a children's barbell with with no weights. So then I can be disappointed and head out and actually find a true gym. But what do I find out at the hotel gym? It's a proper commercial gym. They had everything. But what they also had, they had an octagon, you know, for actual <laughs> mixed martial art fights. So people were fighting or training, fighting there. And this might have been the best gym ever that I found during my travels. So my my internal scoring for Copenhagen went up drastically. Yeah, Copenhagen is awesome. Uh, I live close by, obviously, even if it's a different country, we're connected through the bridge. Uh, so it, it takes me about 20 minutes to take the car over or 12 minutes by train to reach Copenhagen. So it's pretty convenient. Uh, I also love it. So everything you said is is great. There are some very nice microbreweries. So if you're into trying different types of beer, there are some really good microbreweries as well, where you can have a tasting menu. You can taste their like five or six different beers that they uh, create themselves and and then get some really nice food to go with that. Uh, 100% agree, the culture, the food culture, like the culinary experience and, and the people, awesome. On my side, um, I harvested almost all the grapes from the vines this year. And like, we don't have a lot, but we got a, a big load on, you know, the, the grapes, uh, vines that we have. So kind of enough to make at least a few bottles of wine, uh, some juice and then jam or some marmalade. So I, I do love growing things. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that I spend a lot of time outdoors in the garden or out hiking and you know, kind of just harvesting things that we grow as well. Uh, but the season is coming to an end for uh, for the garden, so it's time to plant the garlics and onions for the next year, and then let the garden rest. So this coming weekend is all about closing shop in the garden and just yeah, letting the garden rest until perhaps April or so next year. Sounds good. A couple of community highlights, stuff that we've been reading about lately. I found this interesting blog article from Alan Kinane on Azure Backup. So some of the features you should know, but you probably do not know are generally available. So this includes stuff like enhanced soft delete. And you can find the links for the community highlights in the show notes. Toby, did you find anything from the community? I did uh, take a look at one thing that looks really interesting, and that's by Zachary Cavanaugh on how Microsoft 365 Copilot can work with your external data. So AI and Copilot is a big thing right now. Everyone's talking about it. Um, a lot of the discussions I see is around how do I 
you know, use this with my own data? How do I bring my data into this? So this article is about bringing your external data into your Microsoft uh, 365 Copilot experience to make sure that you ground the generative AI results using connectors and plugins. So it's a pretty interesting read. So take a look at that. Both of these links will be in the show notes. And today's episode is what is Entro ID cross-tenant synchronization? And perhaps I wanted to talk a bit more about Entro ID and this specific feature on this episode, but at the same time, it seems that I always need to pause for a second before saying Entro ID, because for what, 12 years, I said Azure AD or AAD. <laughs> How is it for you? Are you comfortably saying Entro ID all the time, or are you still saying Azure AD, I mean Entro ID? Yeah, uh, probably the latter. So it's it's an exercise I'm getting used to uh, trying to say Entro ID. Uh, but um, to your point, we've been saying Azure AD or AAD for a long time. So even this morning, uh, I told my spouse, hey, I'm going out for a recording in the in the home office. Um, we're going to do a recording on, on AAD rebrand, uh, which I should have maybe said Entro ID. Then on the other hand, she has no idea what any of that means. <laughs> uh, but I just thought for myself, oh, I said it again. I'm still saying AAD. I'm still thinking AAD. Like even visually in my mind, everything is AAD. When I go into the portal, when I do things, when I check, you know, risk compliance, when I do this identity, secure score, whatever, everything to me is AAD. But yeah, it's going to take some time and then you're just going to settle into the new name and that's going to be it. Um, so give it some time. Yeah, indeed. I I was in a meeting maybe a couple of weeks ago where I actually said out loud that let's look at ADFS and Azure AD Connect with Entro ID, and it makes no sense even. <laughs> that's exactly how it goes now. Uh, fun fact though, and I, I had to do a bit of creative Googling for this, the official, and I think it's unofficial, but the official abbreviation for Entro ID is ME-ID, so me ID. And it just doesn't <laughs> roll off the tongue as easily as AAD. Not really. Uh... Yeah, I don't know. It, it's actually quicker to just say Entra ID than it is to. It's actually quicker to type Entra ID as well than it is to to type out capital M E hyphen ID, at least for yeah. me. So yeah, Entra ID but, it is. <laughs> but we had to get something, so what we got is what we deserved, I think. Uh, so today let's talk about cross-tenant synchronization, which is an automated way of synchronizing, meaning creating updating, deleting B2B guest accounts between multiple tenants in an organization. So I'm trying to be careful in defining this because it's it's a fairly, fairly uh, exact way of saying what this capability should be used for. So we have the concept of a organization. So let's let's have an imaginary company. And that company typically has one Entro ID. So that's often bound to Microsoft 365 and to all workloads on Azure and the hybrid and, and everything else. So single sign-on, uh, single enterprise identity store and so on. But then if we get multiple or additional Entro IDs, additional Azure AD tenants, then we might run into, pro in, into trouble because now we have the concept of the business to business, B2B guest account. So the employee of the company 
needs to access resources that are secured and behind this other tenant, this other entry ID tenant. Am I making any sense here? Yeah, um, I think you're making sense here, uh, perhaps because I'm familiar with these concepts as well. Uh, what I would like to explore is, uh, you know, when would you have multiple entry ID tenants? And if we're talking about, uh, you know, this automated way of synchronizing the accounts, you know, creating, updating, deleting business to business guest accounts between the different tenants in your organization, when do you have different tenants? Because you just said, and and this is where I'm coming from as well, most of the time is most companies have at least a tenant, one tenant. You can have multiple, but what are the use cases, like common use cases? There's a long list of use cases for this, but what are some common use cases where you would see that we have multiple tenants and that this would be a kind of a required necessity? So there's there's multiple use cases and probably the two most common ones that I'm seeing in the past year or two that I've worked with customers on all things related to Azure and Entrity has been acquisitions and mergers. That's probably the number one thing. So imagine you have an enterprise grade company, maybe 20,000 employees, and everything is neatly configured and controlled through one single Entrity. But now this large company acquires perhaps a competitor, uh, a competing business, which might be 2,000 people. So they obviously have their intro ID, they have their on-premises, they have their single sign-on and an Azure AD Connect and all of that. They might have an on-premises Active Directory, so they use those accounts and perhaps those identities to log on to the workstation in the morning, but the same account is used for everything else throughout the company. So now what we simply cannot do when you when you acquire a large business like this, 2,000 people, you cannot just do an overnight cut over migration, like let's migrate the mailboxes and let's just create new accounts for the users. And on Monday when they come to their office, they might not be in the same premises. They come to their office. We cannot simply say, well, try logging in with a different account because the merger process might take two or four years. So that's why you have to sort of live with two intro IDs and try to build something that eventually might just be one tenant or eventually it might be two, two or more tenants. So that's reason one. And the second that I often find out is, is development and production environments, meaning production is where users log in, but development or service production is a different setup where we actually serve services for our external users. So again, we might have multiple entry IDs. And it might be that we we are not planning on getting rid of the additional ones. So I do know that the well-architected framework neatly states that you should have one enterprise directory, but often you end up having multiple. And that's that's just the fact of life that you have to live, live with. Yeah. Okay, so that makes sense. I think these are all valid um, valid and pretty common scenarios for this. So, um, you know, what's the what's the kind of next step? Um, there's one thing I'm thinking about is like cross-tenant application access, things like that. I know this is something we we kind of touched on in in various use cases throughout our careers where company 
one builds an app company two or company B needs to access that or like, is, does that affect anything in this regard uh, or how do we set up trust between these things so I'm taking a step back and thinking like with this cross tenant sync uh, does that benefit the organizations who have cross tenant application access as well or is that something entirely different it's a great question and, and when you mentioned back in the day I'm again getting flashbacks from maybe 2007, you would have an on-premises SharePoint farm, SharePoint 2007, <laughs> everything tied up to the local Active Directory, where maybe Kerberos authentication was configured. And then you had a partner company and you needed to somehow grant access between those on-premises systems. And I can't recall, but it was the SDS ADM command line tool that you eventually had to configure to, oh, how did it go? You had to configure with that the visibility for the user picker so that when the partner company accesses your external site on the SharePoint, they wouldn't see all the users to sort of gather information. Mm -hmm. They would only see the users of a given site collection, perhaps. Uh, yeah, the people picker. I yeah. remember that. <laughs> there were some rigorous controls around the people picker and exposing too much data. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah, that that was awful. But back to the question. Uh, yes, for, for this, with the cross-tenant sync, that is now a capability which is generally available since May 2023. It was in public preview before that. And I never really sort of realized it exists until it became generally available. And now I've been using this for a couple of projects. And the idea with this is that you can grant cross-tenant application access for users. And when I say application, it means Microsoft 365, uh, any platform as a service applications you're hosting, virtual machines and so on. So now you have this imaginary company of 20,000 people. Let's call that the tenant A. And those users need to access services on the 2,000 people company that they acquired. Let's call that tenant B. So tenant A users need to access stuff on tenant B. So instead of tenant B going to their web application firewall or whatever they have and just saying, well, let's, let's enable uh, this IP address range that they're coming from, but they can actually invite tenant A users as guest users for tenant B, then they can grant permissions for those tenant A guest accounts in tenant B to whatever apps they have on tenant B. And this is why you would use cross-tenant sync, because otherwise you would have to manually invite tens or hundreds of users and somehow control the access. Now we can sort of build this trust, if you will, that synchronizes defined users from tenant A to tenant B and will grant them access based typically on group membership uh, or, or, or similar access that you might configure on tenant B. So thinking about this, so that clears things up for me um, a little bit and and thinking there, like you, you said, you can synchronize users from tenant A to tenant B. Is this like a bi-directional sync? So you have the same users across both tenants, or is this like we're syncing this one tenant into the other tenant? So like that is gonna be the source of truth or how does that work? So it's always one way, but you can do it one way on each side. So you can sync tenant A to tenant B, and then you can sync tenant B to tenant A. 
typically you probably wouldn't need to do this because there's often a reason why you have multiple entry IDs. And if you end up in, in a situation where you feel, well, I need all 2000 users from tenant B to be synced to tenant A, then you shouldn't probably have a need for all of those 20,000 users on tenant A to have similar access on tenant B, because often the need for sync is access to applications, not licensing, not reporting. It's, it's for user access, what you typically need. And for user access, you often have an application in one of the tenants. So it, it could be on tenant B's Microsoft 365 environment. You might have a Power BI report. They all need to access that. Okay, let's grant the access from here. Or then you could just pick up the application, migrate that to tenant A, but now you would have to retrain those tenant B users to access tenant A, and you end up with the same need having cross-tenant sync. Right. So how do you so how do you do this? Like technically, um, let's imagine we have this scenario. We have tenant A. We want to provision users to tenant B, and we figured out the licenses. We have a bunch of licenses set up. How do we do that? Like, what is the step to you know go from the idea? Okay, we need this. We have a strategy. We need to implement this. How do you actually do that? Is that something achievable, or is that some voodoo? It's it's actually a little bit too easy in my opinion, and and I'm basing this opinion on the fact that you probably recall when PowerShell came out. That was in mid 2000, I think 2005, six, seven, something like that, and Microsoft's sort of message at the time was that already here you have a scripting engine and we'll give you commandlets, we'll give you a nice command or, or terminal based access to these capabilities and APIs, let's say in Exchange Online or SharePoint and so on. And the idea was that we are not building those fancy admin interfaces for you any longer. We are giving everything through PowerShell and eventually we'll figure out what we need to build for the admin UIs. And that was probably for about 10 years, that was the approach. So if something was missing from an admin interface, you would open PowerShell and figure out what to do from there to achieve whatever you needed to do. And I think for Exchange Online, this is very much the reality even today. So now for something like this, cross-tenant sync in Entry ID, it's not something that each organization needs. And when I said this is a little bit too easy, you go to enter admin center, you select identity from their external identities and you have cross-tenant access settings. So from here, let's say you are on tenant B, you go here and you add an organization. So you're adding tenant A, and then you, you check what users you're allowing to sync. And there's a nice checkbox for redeeming invitations automatically, and this is key here. So let's say we are inviting 500 people from tenant A. So now we can automatically redeem, which I think is a fancy way of saying, let's automatically approve those invitations for those users. So the tenant A users do not each individually have to accept the B2B redeeming process. You can do that automatically. So this, this is, the base configuration. It will take you five minutes and you're done. All right. So that that's easy enough. Um, I'm pretty sure there's going to be some adoption challenges or like there's always something to figure out along the way, but it seems like it's 
none of the voodoo that we had to do back in the day to run 25 different commandlets and hack the APIs here and there to, uh, to set things up. Uh, so that's good. Um, you know, I have one question, of course, on uh, the cost for this, because you mentioned licensing. Is there another cost for using this? Or is this just like if you have P1 or P2, you're set, that's it, then this is kind of built in? So I gave the example of this imaginary company of 20,000 people. So for that, the cost is nothing, it's zero. So obviously you're going to need some base licensing in place. So for cross-tenant sync, the minimum license is Entra ID premium P1 license, so Azure AD P1. But typically, a company of that size, they already have P1 because they need conditional access, and conditional access requires P1. So in that sense, licensing is already typically covered for larger enterprises. But then the cross-tenant sync does not have a separate license requirement but there is the limitation of the guest accounts accessing your tenant. So back in the day, we had the one equals five. So for every one license you had, you could grant access to five guest users, but that is no longer the case here. So what you're getting is the first 50,000 monthly active users are free. So let's say we have 20,000 people and from those 500 need to access tenant B of 2,000 people, we are not hitting that 50,000 monthly active users at all. So this will be free to use between the tenants, but then additional active users per month uh, will cost you a little bit. And the prices are so small per monthly active user that I'm not even sure how to, how to say this. For P1 users, it's 0 0.00392 euro per active user per month. For P2, it's a little bit more expensive. It's about one cent per active user per month. So again, let's say you have 500,000 users. These add up quickly. But typically at that scale, you already cover plenty of other bases as well. So again, I feel it's meaningless compared to everything else you've already licensed. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there anything else we need to be aware of before we start tackling this in our organizations or start looking into it? So not not much. Uh, from a technical perspective, this is fairly simple. You can scope the users based on the attributes like member of or first name or last name or location and so on. That's trivial if you've ever maintained an Azure AD or AD instance. You know how to do those, those filters and, and figure out the attributes from the schema. But then my experience on this is that the technical bit is, is fairly easy to build. It will take you a couple of hours to, to lab this and, and then say, this is how we're going to build this. The challenge is more political and often how do we monitor this? How do we document this? Who's responsible for the configuration? How do we ensure that if we filter based on an attribute of member of, that we're not getting extra users in here? So again, this capability is fairly easy to deploy. But when you add 20,000 or 50,000 users and possible regulations and geographical limitations and, and other stuff, then it becomes gradually harder. Again, not because of technology, 
but because of business requirements that you need to factor in in order to configure this fairly simple capability. All right. Yeah, makes sense. Cool. I don't think I have any other questions on this. Is there anything else we need to kind of saturate on this topic? Uh, no, a side topic, and let's tackle that in a different episode, is the multi-tenant organization, which is sort of the sibling capability for this one. But let's tackle that sometime in the near future. But go and have a look at this. Uh, in the show notes, you can find the information on how to get started with this one, links to the billing model, and also the official link for the MEID abbreviation for Microsoft Enter ID. So memorize that. And there's 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 going to be a quiz sometime in the future, and we will be asking what's the abbreviation for Entro ID. Now we know it's MEID. Alrighty. The unexpected question is the last bit we typically have. I do have a question for you, Toby. Are you ready? All right, let's go. So winter is coming. Uh, <laughs> last night it was minus 13 degrees Celsius in Lapland. So I don't live in Lapland, but it's gradually coming down from Lapland to Helsinki as well. That's about 8.6 Fahrenheit, super cold. So already thinking about next summer, when you're going to the beach during summer, which is better, bare feet or flip-flops? That's a great question. Uh, 100% bare feet. And uh, there's nothing better than the sand between the toes, you know, walking around in hot sand during summertime. Um, yeah, that, that'd be my, that'd be my answer. Also, I do a lot of snorkeling and free diving and stuff like that. And if I used flip-flops, I would have to carry an extra pair of, you know, shoes and, and I would have to kind of leave them at the beach when I go in. So that would be inconvenient. So for that reason, bare feet. Sounds good. Let's revisit this topic. Uh, how many months, nine, eight months from now when we're nearing summer again. Well, we get two, two weeks of summer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alrighty. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. All right. See you then. 